So this is round three. And I have to say, before I begin, I genuinely appreciate you guys uh, listening to me as I'm kind of figuring this whole sermon thing out. Um, as far as today goes, I'm very excited to share um, what I've prepared. And I didn't coordinate with uh, Trisha on the, the scripture reading. I'm actually not preaching out of Romans, but there are quite a few parallels um, between what she read and what we'll be going through. Uh, today we'll be going through Psalm chapter 73. It's a great psalm. Um, and some things maybe to pull out of what she read in Romans um, that you'll, you'll see parallels in this would be renewing our minds or, or the whole idea of, of vengeance is mine, like God's, God's just and in the end he sets, he sets things right. All right, so let's begin. Um, the internet was made publicly available on August 6th of 1991. Two years and about eight months later, I was born. Yeah. <laughs> um, my dad, he used to talk about how, how to read a book. He like sort of teach, this is how you read a book. This is what you did in college, etc. He said, you take a book and you read the cover. And then you flip it over and you read the back cover. And then you open it up and you read the inserts. And then you read the uh, introduction, the foreword, the index. You scan through the chapters. You look at all the titles, etc. You get familiar with the book, and then you read it page by page, word by word. Unfortunately, I did not learn how to process information that way. Instead, if I wanted to know something, I would Google it and get hundreds of thousands of results back. Today, you get millions of results back. As a matter of fact, I Googled how to build a treehouse, and I got... I think it was 18,700,000 results back in 0.65 seconds. So when I would go to look for information, I wouldn't read the cover, read the back cover, read the forward, read the index, read the title, read the chapters. Instead, I would scan and extract information. So um, where am I going with this? It's a great question. Where I'm going with this is talking about this concept of meditation. And this is not the sermon, this is actually more just setting up how we're going to approach this chapter. So in, in modern times, like, there's different definitions of meditation. Even in the secular community, there's different definitions of meditation. Um, there are some forms of meditation that have to do with emptying your mind to where there is, there's no object to focus. And then there's a different type of meditation that talks about focusing intently on one thing um, in a way that, that all the chaotic, sporadic thoughts are, are zeroed in, okay? And I think that scriptural meditation is, in, is not emptying your mind. It's actually honing in on one thing. And there's an analogy I'd kind of like to use to, to set this up maybe a little bit better. Imagine that a body of information is a forest, okay? There's trees, there's hills, there's maybe a stream, etc., depending on what this body of information is. And imagine if a scripture, let's say Psalm 73, is also a forest. Now, if you run sporadically around looking at one thing or another, you never wear down trails in this forest. You don't become familiar with it. Meditation on scripture is essentially, um, it's not scanning for information, and it's walking slowly through this forest, right? The pace that you set is not hurried. There's no rush or anxiety. Meditation is walking those trails again and wearing down a familiar path. Meditation discovers new things. So you're in this forest, and if you glance at a tree, you see a tree. 
But if you continue to look at it, you'll see the branches and then you'll see the leaves. And if you get closer to this tree, you're going to notice patterns in the bark and a quiet symphony of colors. There's going to be grays and greens and deep muted browns, etc. The idea being that by continuing to look, you discover more. And the ground we're covering is, is maybe, maybe kind of small. It's one, it's one psalm. But it's really cool that as you continue to look, you're going to see more. And for me, this idea of meditating on Scripture is very profound and extremely useful. Because going from sporadically jumping from one idea to the next, to slowing down and quietly wearing down trails and becoming familiar, there's a lot of benefit to that that I think is, is incredibly useful. So... How are we going to approach this? Um, I'm going to give you a general lay of the land. We're going to continue the forest analogy, and the psalm kind of works with that quite nicely. Um, And then once we have the general lay of the land, I'm going to give you a few landmarks to look out for. So, what to expect from this psalm. Verse 1 and 2 set the stage for Psalm 73. It sets the stage very well. In verse 1, and we'll see it, and you can go ahead and pull up Psalm 73, because we're just going to be going through that the whole time. Um... It says, Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, that distance between truly God is good and but as for me, that's quite dramatic. Like, how did, how did, he, how did he make that switch? Kind of makes me think of, of something we do, and it's a great thing we do. We say, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Yes, God is good, but then we have this, this little bit of a separation. So that sets the stage, because over the next 10 verses, Asaph explains how good the ungodly have it, but they're bad, but they have it good, and yet they're so very bad. That's the next 10 verses. And we can consider these next seven verses as a slippery, treacherous incline. Once we reach this, the top of this incline, this hill or this mountain, the wind is the strongest at the pinnacle. This is sort of the crux or the crisis. Here, Asaph says, I have kept my heart clean in vain. This is what's happening at, at the, the most dangerous or treacherous part of, of this journey. I have clept kept my heart in vain. And to use a relevant term, Asaph was in a dark place. Asaph tries to figure things out on his own. He's he's trying to sort the pieces together. But Asaph doesn't fix things. He doesn't restore his mind through some heroic effort. So does the story end there? It doesn't. No, Asaph enters God's sanctuary, and it is there that his mind is restored. From that moment, from that, that verse on, Asaph sees clearly, and we can imagine on this journey that we've reached a clearing. And from this area, this vantage point, you can see for miles. There's no threatening wind. There's perspective here. Asaph sees clearly because of this restoration that happens when he enters God's sanctuary. So that's the lay of the land. Now for some landmarks. Um, You'll notice in the beginning of the, the book, or the chapter, Asaph talks about his feet nearly slipping. And then in the middle, he talks about how God was holding his right hand. So he nearly slipped, but we find out later God was holding his right hand. 
And then later he says, the wicked, they're on slippery ground. And so there's, you've, we've heard about the talking about chiastic structures. That maybe is one that you'll, you'll notice. The other landmark uh, you'll notice is Asaph's perspective, like uh, perspective getting completely flipped. So in the beginning, he'll say something like, I was envious of the arrogant. But then later, he says, there is nothing on earth I desire beside you, referring to God. Those are not the same thing he's saying there. Something radically shifted between the first half and the second half, which is in the middle. So, now that we have an overview of the psalm, let's begin. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. God is good, but as for me, it's a feeling I dare say that you're familiar with. I know God is good, but as for me, I'm an exception. I'm stumbling. There's a a tendency to hold God's word at arm's length. God himself, just holding, holding the promises of God, God's word at arm's length. God is good to his people, but do we dare hold his word closer? What does it look like to hold God's word close? Verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We talked on the Christmas service, for those of you who are there, the word shalom came up, the word for peace, etc. The word here used for prosperity is shalom. And it makes sense even when you read the rest of this psalm. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the shalom of the wicked. So, Question, who are these wicked people? And how bad do you have to be to earn the title of wicked and arrogant? Now, as I hold the Bible at arm's length, I imagine a figurative villain, the worst of the worst, very bad guy. But what happens if we hold scripture a little bit closer? So we could start by looking at the original Hebrew for when it's talking about wicked. So the word here for wicked that's used is rasha. And that comes from the Hebrew word rasha. Um, Very similar, I know. (laughs) The word describes a morally wrong individual, an ungodly individual, someone who actively does wrong. So Asaph may be talking about people very close to him, other leaders in Israel, etc. But let's consider another parallel. There is a battle between the sinful nature and the redeemed man. Jesus taught about the law and apply it inward towards the heart. And this also may have been out of necessity because the Pharisees followed the law in a way that totally neglected the heart behind it. So reading about this this battle Asaph is engaged in, if you really read it, it's happening within. And when we read it and answer the question, who is the wicked? One answer to that question is our old sinful nature. The old you fits that bill. What does the old you, the old person, offer you? Why would anyone, after being redeemed, look backwards? Let's continue. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Pangs until death, basically, they're they're at ease. They have shalom. They're not suffering. Um, Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, as we hold this passage, again, at arm's length, 
I'm sure that the first thing that came to mind was Alfonso II of Portugal, obviously. But holding the passage a bit closer, we know that the idea of fat in ancient times was an indication of abundance. So, if we frame this in the context of our old sinful nature versus our holy and redeemed nature, I might read this as there is an abundance of things that my sinful nature wants and has access to. The old man appears to offer abundance and satisfaction. Let's continue. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Why are the godly persecuted? Why does Jesus say things like, take up your cross and follow me? In the Christian walk, there's a very real part that is walking towards hardship, not away. Now, to be clear, celebrating hardship merely for the sake of hardship, it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not right. So, we do not take on hardship merely for the sake of hardship. But rather, like the example we see in Psalm 119 and many other places, out of love for God's word, which is out of love for God, God is word, right? So out of love, we strive to live the life we were called into regardless of any suffering. Why? Because we live for something higher than the ground we're on. The truth is, suffering is an objective reality in human life. Living your life in a way that minimizes suffering and maximizes comfort is reasonable if there is no higher, no greater meaning or purpose to your life. So what is the alternative? Live your life pursuing your higher calling. Pursuing a higher calling restructures your priority so that this thing, this one thing, is chosen above all else despite hardship. What is more tragic than suffering, what is more tragic than suffering is having no greater priority than comfort. So what is your higher calling? We've talked about hearing God's voice here recently. In Francis Chan's book, You and Me Forever, he talks about the idea of adoption. The default position many Christians take is when God speaks audibly to me, that I'm called to adoption, well, maybe then I'll consider it. Yet the scriptures are clear that we are supposed to take care of the widows and orphans. So why not assume that God has already called us into that? Why not err on the side of action? I say that not just about adoption, but for those of us, myself included, who hesitate to take action because we're waiting on an extra source of direction besides the Bible. Passivity may have been the mode of the church in the past, but that it is not where God is taking his church. We are called to be active, not passive. And before you say yes, amen, remember the two, first two verses of this chapter. Yes, amen, God is good. Yes, amen, this church shouldn't be passive, but as for me. Let's continue. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's interesting because this passage talks about what they were wearing, their, their garments, pride encompassing about like a chain. 
It talks about the inward condition of their heart and then what came out of them, their fruit, if you will. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Imagine Asaph's position here. God's people, his people, are approving of these people that he's living differently than. And that he's struggling, he's struggling with this whole idea of keeping his heart pure. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. This is where Asaph marks the end of his description of the wicked. He summarizes the whole description with these three things. They're wicked, they're always at ease, and they're prospering. This idea of shalom as well. What Asaph goes into next is this crux, this crisis. We talked about going up this steep incline. We're now at the, the area at the top where the wind is the strongest. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Is Asaph speaking truth here? How did he get to this point? What path did he take to get here? What happened between surely God is good and it's a waste? Let me ask the question. What was Asaph's eyes oriented towards? Where was his attention and his focus? Yeah. Yeah. The wicked in general. Yeah. And their prosperity, etc. So, there's a truth in here that what you orient yourself towards, what you focus on, what you think about, often sets your course. And if you don't believe me, try walking in one direction while looking somewhere else. Eventually, you're going to trip or you're going to have to change what you're looking at. Now, there is a way to take this idea to an extreme in which it no longer becomes helpful and it can actually become a, a, a dangerous, harmful idea. And that's the idea that merely... Uh, speaking, you, the, the idea that you would merely speak your world into existence. But we do not merely speak our world to an, in, into existence because this world's already been spoken into existence by someone else. So there, there, is, there is a balance between the truth that what we orient ourselves towards is often the direction we find ourselves going, but is not necessarily the thoughts that bring into, into reality. There's a balance there. Let's continue. For all the day long, I have been stricken. This is Asaph here. He's talking about, remember what he just said, in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken. I'm suffering. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here, Asaph's mind is out of alignment. I imagine it like a spine that has been twisted, causing even simple tasks like walking to become painful. What can Asaph do? Where can he go? His foundation has been shaken. He's on treacherous ground. His feet have nearly slipped. What will set things right? Where is his solid ground? 
But when I thought to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Asaph is trying to sort out the pieces. He understands things aren't right. And his fixation on the ungodly has disoriented him. He needs help. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. This is the moment when he transitions from this treacherous place to the clearing. Evaporated is what just happened. These thoughts that were a burden to him are not a burden. His feet have been realigned. Asaph is on a foundation. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, this is, this is where everything changes. And we're going to continue reading and, and see just how much Asaph's mind has been renewed. His perspective has shifted into a larger one. And I think that this can be made very practical, once again, holding the scriptures close. If we think about the practical reorientation that Asaph experienced in God's sanctuary and the very real disorientation that happened when his eyes were pointed elsewhere, consider what disorients you. Like, really, let's be practical and think about that for a minute. The world is not without its distractions. You matter too much to live distracted, and you were called into too much to live distracted. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Slippery places. Remember the earlier landmark. Asaph felt like he was in slippery places. He realizes, he realizes where his foundation is, and he realizes that they have no foundation. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you will despise them as phantoms. Life in the bigger context is very short. It's like a vapor. And it's, under e it's very easy to undervalue the preciousness of just one day or one hour. There is more to life than traveling from birth to the grave as comfortably as possible. It's obvious, right? But we don't see what's obvious when our head is oriented in the wrong direction. When my soul, back to the scriptures, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph talking to God here. Asaph isn't really being harsh. It sounds like he's being very harsh on himself. I was like a beast towards you. But to know who he was and to know who you are and to envy the old nature is like a beast or an animal who has no greater perspective. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Remember again in verse 2, when Asaph's steps had, steps had nearly slipped, but who was holding his right hand? God was. Elliot is learning how to walk, and he's not the best at it yet, so sometimes he falls, right? And sometimes, because of that, I'll, I'll hold his hand when he walks. Now, when he slips or he trips, he doesn't fall completely because I'm holding his hand. And maybe he could pull his hand away, and then he could trip and fall. But I'm not so sure he could because my hand is strong, and I'm not going to let go of him when he's in danger. 
I'm not talking about like strict doctrinal things. I know this is the whole Calvinism, etc. I'm talking about the heart of God. God has your hand when you're in danger, right? For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God, my refuge. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is the last verse. Compare it to the first verse. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me. And now he is saying, but as for me, it is good to be near God. This distance of God is good to them, but, but as for me, it's good to be near God. Closing that distance. This psalm displays a beautiful dichotomy between choosing to wear the garments of righteousness and godliness despite suffering, doing hard things, and the reassurance that God is holding our right hand and guiding us with his counsel. If Asaph had tried to figure this out on his own, he would have failed. If Asaph looked at the other people who Israel seemed to approve of, the people who he was living differently then, and had chosen to live like those people, then we, he wouldn't have had the same fellowship with God that we see in the later half of this psalm. Because it is not us versus God where we hide from his law. It is not us on our own where we try to, through some heroic effort, satisfy these requirements he placed on the world. No, it is God partnering with us. Remember, holding the hand, guiding us with his counsel, his partnership, working together, not working on our own, not looking to God to drag us by the hand. God was with Asaph in verse 2 when he said, my steps had nearly slipped, and God is with you. This week, you will face being disoriented. Like I said before, this world is not without its distractions. As we read this psalm, disorientation came from looking intently in the wrong direction. And it might be worthwhile to identify and walk away from some things that do disorient you. So this is my closing. The difference between Jesus isn't worth it, I have kept my heart clean in vain, and whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none on earth I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The difference between those two things was where Asaph was, where his focus was. And after he was in God's sanctuary and his mind was, was renewed. Let's consider this deeply. Let's pray. God, lead us into your presence where we can, we can see clearly. We, we acknowledge that we get lost and we find ourselves in this uphill struggle where our feet feel like they're slipping because we're disoriented, God. But we need you. We need you to renew our minds to give us this new perspective, God. We want to be walking with you. We know you're holding our hand, God. Please, please be with us this week. Be with all of us this week. In your name we pray. Amen.